we've mentioned that John deals with the main enemies of the church in the reverse order from which they're introduced in the book. So Babylon was introduced last, and Babylon's destruction gets narrated first. The previous enemies introduced were the beast and the false prophet, the false prophet being the, the uh, propaganda arm of the beast. And so today, John, having narrated the destruction of Babylon, turns to their destruction, the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. And so we'll look at this text from Revelation 19 under three headings. They're there in your outline on the back inside page of the bulletin. The warrior, the supper, and the war. The warrior, the supper, and the war. So Revelation 19, verse 11 John again sees heaven open, and he sees a white horse, and its rider is Christ himself. What we have here, and if someone were to ask, where exactly in the book of Revelation, where could you pinpoint the actual second coming of Christ, his appearance in glory? It's this text. It's been narrated before. We've seen the end before. We've seen the judgment. The book is cyclical. But if, if you were to say, where does Christ appear? Where is his advent? It's here. He appears on this horse. Heaven is opened and John sees him. And so what he sees is Christ coming again in glory. And this white horse was first seen all the way back in chapter 6. It was the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in chapter 6. The horse was called Conquest. And there the horse indicated Roman warfare. That horse in chapter 6 is a pale reflection, a parody of this horse. And so here this white horse, picking up on the white garments of the saints, symbolizes purity, Christ's purity and his victory. So this is Christ the victor, the risen victor, riding forth now for the final battle. So again, it's important to see these scenes and remember them. Remember, and you've probably heard, depending on your age, dozens if not more, Palm Sunday sermons. He whose triumphal entry into Jerusalem before his passion was on a donkey. Right, That same one, and it's often said in these Palm Sunday sermons, I say it myself. He doesn't come on a war horse. He comes on a donkey, meek and mild. Well, that same Christ does, in fact, finally come on a war horse. It's very important to get this, right? Because this is another, of course, great function of the book of Revelation. If you go through your whole Christian life and die at a ripe old age, right? You, you, you might hear 80 or 90 Palm Sunday sermons about Jesus always comes meek and mild on a donkey and zero from the book of Revelation that Jesus comes again on a war horse in glory to judge the living and the dead because preachers shy away from the book of Revelation. Well, that does us all a great disservice, right? That leads to a truncated and distorted vision of Jesus. The one Sitting on the horse here is called faithful and true. He's the faithful and true witness. Both in his lamb-like passion and in his lion-like appearance here. 
In both instances, he is witness. Faithful and true is witness terminology. Here, the one who is the witness comes to witness against his enemies. Or we might say the witness is here coming as warrior. And so the text picks up the language of the prophets, particularly the language of messianic expectation, which you can find, for example, in Isaiah 11. The text tells us that with justice he judges and wages war. So the war of this lamb is utterly just. He prosecutes the divine justice. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire. John originally saw this feature, this transfigured Christ with eyes blazing with fire. He originally saw this all the way back in chapter 1. When John receives this vision, which is the book of Revelation, he is summoned up into heaven and he sees this Christ and he has these eyes. And we said then, and probably have said it throughout the series, and I'll say it again here, this is the only Christ we know or deal with. There simply is no other Jesus for you to talk to or pray to or commune with. So you might read about Jesus bouncing a child on his knee or healing someone in the Gospels. But even as you are reading that text, you're communing with this Jesus. The ascended, transfigured, fiery, coming Jesus. The only Jesus. You would never know this, would you? You would never know this in the evangelical church. You would think we're dealing with the infant Jesus. Or that somehow we're only dealing with the historical Jesus. We're dealing with this Jesus at every point. We can't know Christ according to the flesh. We only know this Christ. At every moment. The Christ whose eyes are blazing with fire. These are the penetrating, all-knowing, piercing, scouring eyes of the judge of all the earth. And on his head, the text says there are many crowns. The, uh, the beast had ten diadems on its heads. And Satan was depicted, or the serpent was depicted, the dragon in Revelation earlier, as having seven heads with seven diadems. And both of these numbers, seven and ten, symbolize their claim to universal sovereignty. And here... Christ is depicted as the true sovereign. He excels or exceeds them all because on his head are many, many diadems. And there's a certain sense in which this figure is meant and indeed is seen by John as dreadful. Just as he was in chapter 1. And we get this statement that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. It's an intriguing statement. I mean, the point is not that the name is a total secret or that the name of Christ does not have some kind of public manifestation. He's already been named faithful and true. Later in the text, we're going to be told his name is the word of God. And then even later, we'll be told that he has a written name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
In fact, that name, that rich, multifaceted name that, uh, that Christ bears is revealed by these coming judgments. It's what we pray for when we pray, hallowed be thy name. And yet, we're told no one knows the name but he, he himself. And the point here is that the name marks him out as divi- divine. In the mystery of Christ's divine being, he knows the name in a way, even when he shares it with us, that we do not. No one knows the Son but the Father. Right? Only God knows God. There's a sense in which the Lord Jesus Christ remains transcendent, inescapable, elusive, one whom we are unable to plumb the depths of. He knows himself, his name, his being, in a way no one else can know it. We're just grabbing onto shards or fragments of it. This is another very important, um, I think, orientation for the church. Because it orients us to a Jesus who cannot be domesticated. Right? Who's just who's not like a nerf ball Jesus. Harmless. Right? This is a Jesus who is not only dreadful in his appearance, but his ineffable transcendence is something you can't get at. He never becomes the property of the church. So this one is now appearing. And then we are told that he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, this is not his own blood. Nor is it the blood of the martyrs. This is the blood of his enemies trampled in his wrath. And the whole scene, we know this because, well, we know it from this text alone, but the whole scene is borrowed from Isaiah 63. I've read this passage before, I think, in the, in the series. But it's an important text. So Isaiah 63, I want to read it, the portion of it that's relevant here. It says, Who is this who comes from Eden? Splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like... His who treads the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart. That's an unbelievable text. The blood that's on the robe of Jesus is prefigures, if you will, here, the blood of his enemies. And we're given his name for a second time. He's called the Word of God. He is the Word of God, but here he's the Word of God who speaks judicial testimony and judgment rendered in person. And with him are the armies of heaven, the text says, arrayed in fine linen. You are with him. In other words, you are Destiny is to be in this scene, riding in this army, if you will, with these garments, priestly clothing that are made white, both by the blood of the Lamb and by the the deeds God has given you to do in your life. 
the righteous deeds. And so this army of the saints, which has been depicted before in Revelation, is following Christ as their captain into battle, like him riding on white horses. So the saints accompany Christ and in some way participate in these coming judgments, these vindicating judgments. It's what God is doing in the church, prepping the church for this day. And so verse 15 says, From his mouth, the mouth of the word of God, comes a sharp sword. This is, what, as I mentioned, a judicial word. And it's used to strike down the nations. So this is the word of Hebrews 4, which we heard in our call to worship. He is the word of God, and he speaks the word of God. He does the word of God and performs it as judge. And then the text depicts or evokes Psalm 2, a famous psalm. John has appealed to it four or five times at least. It's a psalm which depicts the kings of the earth as vainly assembled against Jehovah to try and break or throw off his rule. And we're told here that he will rule or break the nations with an iron scepter. That's that's from Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2. And this promise was given to the overcomers all the way back in the beginning of the book, chapter 2. It was promised that if they were faithful, they too would rule the nations with a rod of iron. In other words, they would be on these white horses behind the rider. And then, in case we're not convinced that we're at the end here, verse 15, the second half, tells us that this one is going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That is where and that is how his robe gets splattered with blood. It is, if you will, a violent scene. And I will return to to the violence of the language, Lord willing, in a few minutes. I mean, there's blood on his garment. You might ask, how did the blood get there? Well, we read the text from Isaiah 63, but we're just told right here in this text that he treads a winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And then in verse 16, we're given his name for the third time. King of kings, Lord of lords. It's a radical Political title. All political authority is given. We often don't think about this, but to have political authority means you're authorized. Right? That's what it means to have authority. It means to be authorized. Everyone who's authorized with public authority has to be authorized by somebody else. And all political authority is legitimated by our God and King, manifested in Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's no small part, I think, of the crisis we have as a nation of the the lack of confidence, the lack of a sense of the goodness and integrity of our public institutions is the fact that we now believe that nobody has to authorize governments, right? That they're just instruments of pure procedure or pure bureaucracy dangling in the air, that they receive no divine authorization. And ultimately, those kinds of institutions cannot be sustained, and they cannot sustain the hope and the trust and the confidence of a people. 
But we don't even have this conversation, do we, in our political debate? No one goes on CNN and says, look, you cannot have public, legitimate political authority unless one acknowledges the sovereign God who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Jesus Christ. Right? It's banished. You can't say that. So we have to talk about politics as if it's just dangling in midair. And now we have a crisis where the whole thing just becomes raw power, scratching and clawing. So contrary to the beast and all of his client kings in the book, the one John sees here has universal sovereignty. But notice this, it's universal political sovereignty over the kings of the earth. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And all the kings who don't do what Psalm 2 says they should do, kiss the sun, give homage to the sun, will meet this dreadful warrior in this scene. So that's the warrior. Christ the warrior. The second point is the supper. There's this radiant angel standing in the sun, and there's a summons to these scavenger birds of prey. And what comes next is really a gruesome scene. It's, it's macabre. And it's a parody of the wedding invitation of the Lamb, the, the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we saw last week. Come, gather for the great supper of God. Last week, the saints were called to gather for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Here, there's a call to these scavenger birds to come gather for the great supper of God. You know, suppers in the Bible, these kinds of Eucharistic feasts, and this is in, we would call this an anti-Eucharistic feast. Right? The, the marriage supper of the Lamb is a Eucharistic feast. This is an anti-Eucharist, a, 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 a parasitical distortion and parody of the Eucharist. But Eucharists have flesh and they have blood at them. And we've already seen where the wine or the blood is coming from in this great anti-Eucharist feast. It's already splattered all over Christ's garments. And this now is the flesh or the body portion of that same anti-Eucharist. And these birds are called to feast on these exposed fallen bodies, lying on the field of the warrior's triumphant battle. The flesh of kings and generals and mighty men and great and small. The language expressly drawn from Ezekiel 39, which depicts history's final battle. It was a text that was read this morning in the Old Testament lesson. So I won't read it again, but John is not making this language up. He's, he's saying the language of Ezekiel is consummated here. So here I want to make a, a kind of a crucial like a structural point about where we are and what the book's doing. John narrates, because your head can be spinning, I understand. Um, He narrates this final battle three times. He does it in chapter 16, where Babylon's destroyed. He does it here. And he will do it again in chapter 20, where Satan and unbelievers are judged. But the crucial point is this. It's the same battle seen from three different perspectives. It's simply the main protagonists of the book meeting their various ends. 
It, once you see that, then in, in, in a big picture way, the book is easy. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls of wrath, they run up to the end, they wrap back, they run up to the end, they wrap back, and then John basically mops up the protagonist in the back end of the book. Right? Babylon, the beast and the false prophet, the dragon. Three, and depicts those battles three times. In that sense, the book's not that hard. So the third point here is war. The war. Verse 19. In verse 19, you get this language of assembling together for the battle. The exact same words are used in chapter 16, and they're used again in chapter 20, as are used here, again, linking all three battle scenes. So John has these very subtle literary ways of telling you, I'm telling you the same thing from a different perspective. He has linking words where he echoes the previous scenes. And here the language of assembling, being assembled together for the final battle is that link. So John says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against the rider of the horse and his army, the saints. And this battle, this great final battle, it's over in an instant. It's not much of a battle, really. The beast was captured, verse 20, and with him the false prophet, and these two figures are thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur or brimstone. They're corporate figures, the beast. The empire, it's propaganda arm. And again, John's just borrowing this language from Ezekiel. He borrows it from Ezekiel 38, verse 22. Let me read that verse. I will enter into judgment with him, and I will reign upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. That same scene from Ezekiel has this fiery sulfur. And finally, the rest, the followers of the beast and the false prophet are killed here. Their eternal judgment waits chapter 20. Right? They were here, the text says, slain by that same word that comes from the mouth of the one sitting on the horse. And so what's the result? I mean, there's, there's, no, um, there's no struggle in this battle. It's effortless for Christ to defeat his enemies. The result is that the assembled birds, the text says, gorged with the flesh of all the slain in this great anti-Eucharist feast. This is the second coming of Jesus. The same Jesus who came on a donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Now, this is another passage which, to put it mildly, offends modern sensibilities. You know, and, and certainly it's a passage that should cause us to ask a few questions. But it offends modern people, including the sensibilities of some very talented theologians. I can tell you that amid the, uh, the commentaries that I look at, there's a man of great skill. Great skill in handling the text of the New Testament, clearly made squeamish by this passage as I read his commentaries on it. And he keeps saying in his commentary, this is figurative language, and it doesn't depict a literal battle. And he keeps reminding us that Jesus conquered not by violence, but by laying down his life. To which I say, well, sure. I mean, who doesn't believe that? 
Of course the language is figurative. Of course it is. But the question is figurative of what? What is it figuring? It's figurative of a reality that is apparently best described as military slaughter. No, it's not a literal military slaughter. It's the second coming where Jesus judges. But that doesn't mean it's less dreadful. Or that it's, that it's less of an imposition of divine judgment on his enemies against their will because it's not literal. One thing is for sure, this is not literal language, figurative language for Jesus turning the other cheek and allowing his enemies to kill him. So again, you can see, even in the best skilled theologians, you can see that when you cut this Christ of this text off from the historical Jesus, you get this half-Christ, this truncated Christ. There are some Christians, I would say perhaps most Christians, who can't deal with this Jesus. And And the irony of this, of course, is this is the only Jesus we've got to deal with. And so... They have essentially fabricated another Jesus. This is part of the reason the world, A, doesn't pay attention to us, and B, has the most sentimental, drippy, maudlin conceptions of what Christianity is. All sorts of mischief ensues for us as people who are trying to be faithful and true witnesses by the neglect of this book. And as we've said... It's precisely because Jesus lived and he died in the manner that he did. It's that which underwrites the integrity and the justice of these dreadful scenes. This text may bother you. That's okay. I, I think at first blush it should bother people. There's a sense in which we're not used to it. But I know it doesn't bother me. And I, maybe I can share why, and maybe that will help you. It's because this wrath, and it is wrath, is the wrath of the Lamb who was slain. Right? It's the one who was broken, and the one who was judged. It's the wrath of the meek Lamb of God. And you can trust his goodness. You can trust his goodness. It's apocalyptic language, to be sure. It's graphic language, to be sure. But if I might be so bold, there's a kind of holy violence here to end all violence, right? To set the cosmos right. And the one in whose hands it rests is the one in whose hands there were nails driven, right? And so it's okay. It's perfectly good. It's important to see that it's only a half-truth, though one often repeated. Surely you've heard this. The Jews expected a militaristic Messiah, and instead they got the mild, self-giving Jesus. Who hasn't heard that? Well, I'm sure you've heard that, right? There's four Sundays in Advent, and if you live your Christian life in the church, and you hear four Christmas sermons a year, right, and you live to a ripe old age, well, you could hear 320 sermons on how the Jews expected a militaristic warrior Messiah. Instead, they got the meek and mild Jesus. 320 sermons at Christmas. 
80 sermons at Palm Sunday, that's 400 sermons across the span of your life on the meek and mild Jesus on the donkey, zero on this Jesus. 400 to zero. The Christian vision, when it's fully expounded, has to say much more than that. But we're in a culture where we say the half part of the truth all the time, the other half never gets said. Again, it's precisely because Jesus is the nonviolent, suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that he is also mysteriously the conquering warrior of this text. And as warrior king, administering the wrath of the Lamb, now this is important to get, he is much more devastating than any possible Jewish militaristic Messiah could possibly be. Right? I mean, so not only is it a distortion to get, to get the 320 Christmas sermons about they wanted a militaristic Messiah, they got, they got meek and mild Jesus. You, you, the militaristic Messiah is a powder puff compared to the Jesus of this scene. And so, without this text, it turns out we can't protect the things we want to protect, right? We want to protect scripturally the fact that we're to follow Jesus nonviolently and to be meek and to turn the other cheek. But as we've seen before, the way to protect that is because we can be meek and mild and nonviolent in history because he is going to take care of the vengeance and justice part at the end. It turns out that this scene actually grounds your ability to be meek and mild. What would the point of being meek and mild be if Jesus had said, I'm never going to come back and deal with the enemies and rectify the situation. Just keep being meek meek and mild forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and we'll let the beast trample the earth regularly at periodic intervals. Have a good day. This This is why Paul says in Romans, he says... You should turn the other cheek. You should um, show kindness to your enemies, he says, right? And then, he's, this is Romans 12, for, for in doing so, you heap burning coals on their head, he says, and you leave vengeance to the Lord, Paul says. So, back to the, to the gentleman I spoke of uh, who was squeamish about this in his commentary. And here I do want to be serious. There's an instinct, of course, about that that I understand. All human beings have it. But there's also another motivation that has to be respected from our friends and brothers who might be squeamish about this text. And it is that a text like this has been used on occasion throughout the history of the church to justify ungodly violence by Christians. Right? There are always whack jobs who are going to take a text like this and say, Jesus wants us to get our swords and get on our horses and slay his enemies. So this text scares people, and I understand that, that, that fear. It's a legitimate fear to have. And it's an unmitigated tragedy that Christians can't read their Bibles better than they do. Right? You could see how an unstable person or group of people reading a text like this might think, well, gee, of course we can do violence to Christ's enemies. It's precisely because he's the one on the white horse who administers the justice that you turn the other cheek. The Bible makes that very clear. 
So it is a tragedy that the text has been misused, something for which the church should repent. And and it's the reason for some people's squeamishness. Nevertheless, we can't refuse to say what has to be said. Right? The beast and the false prophet and their minions have drenched the earth in the blood of the saints and they filled it with violence and deceit and economic exploitation. And they get, as God and the saints repeatedly declare, they get justice. That's it. Exactly. No more, no less. Exactly what they deserve. Who doesn't rejoice when a jury hands down a just verdict. And when this, this justice is meted out, the saints are in the army, and they'll rejoice in it. And it's just because this is the case, because this is the end, we never return evil for evil. Right? If your, mother, if your, if your mom says, Dad's going to come home and he's going to deal with you too and bring some sort of eschatological judgment into this situation at the end of the day... Right? Then it's best if you're a kid to maybe start turning the other cheek before dad gets home, right? I mean, that doesn't, that threat does not make a young child think, I better take matters into my own hands and start beating up my siblings some more, right? It is precisely the fact that Jesus is coming and, gonna, and he's going to administer justice that we can love, we can return, never return evil for evil, that we love and pray for our enemies and our persecutors. We imitate his faithful witness. We allow ourselves to be searched by the word of God. We confess now that he's king of kings and lord of lords. We ride donkeys now, beloved. We ride donkeys. We don't ride white horses. We're riding donkeys now. And we wait for the coming of our warrior king. The day of his vengeance, that's the day of our redemption. Amen.